Amen. Stand for the reading of our text this morning. And this is part of our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, our theme for the year at Zion here is uh, let you, what you uh, heard from the beginning abide in you. Today we look at the phrase, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Let's stand to hear our text. We're looking at uh, today from Acts chapter 13. Uh, this is a uh, Paul's missionary journey, the first missionary journey he goes out. This is one of his first stops along the way in Antioch. And Paul preaches to the people in the synagogue, and he touches uh, some of the things that are, uh, that, are, that are summarized in the creed, in this part of the creed. Let's look at Acts chapter 13. Uh, I'll begin in verse 26. Paul has uh, uh, kind of summarized the history of Israel and, and uh, coming to the point here, Acts Verse 26 in Acts 13, brothers, sons of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken in this way, I'll give you the holy, sure blessings of David. And therefore he says in another psalm, you'll not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We need to hear it. We need ears that are open. Uh, open our ears. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. Let us see Christ, hear his gospel, believe his promises. This is you glorify his name and build his church. Amen. You may be seated. Dearly beloved people of God, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our theme for the year at Zion is that what, let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And this is a good theme because we've been through some rough seasons of political and social issues that have been unusually hard. And so in the church, we need to keep the main thing the main thing and not let our inevitable differences uh, keep us from abiding in Christ and loving one another. So we're doing this series in the Apostles' Creed kind of as part of that idea to remember that we confess one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have a common faith, and that unites us with all of those here together at Zion and also with a large and strange and sometimes crazy company of brothers and sisters across the world and in different languages and in many centuries. 
Now, the Apostles' Creed, it's interesting, it's different than other creeds because we don't have a time and place for it. Uh, you get the Nicene Creed, we know where that came from, Council of Nicaea in 324, okay? The Westminster Confession of Faith, we know where that came from, London, 1647. You get a council together and they debate the issues and they come up with a creed. But the Apostles' Creed is kind of fuzzy. We don't know exactly where it came from. There were earlier forms of this creed kind of floating around here and there with some minor variations, but the Apostles' Creed didn't come from a council where they debated and adopted it. But still, it's the Apostles' Creed. Everybody kind of knew it. Everybody used a version of it, at least. Other creeds came from a time of dispute and some kind of issue, some kind of error. Nicaea was aimed at error in the uh, Bishop Arius, who was teaching that the Son was a created being. And so they wrote the Nicene Creed, and they had some very pointed statements in it. You know, he's begotten, not made. He's the same substance with the Father. Westminster Confession comes from the time of the Reformation and all the storms there. So it has very detailed statements pointed at the sufficiency of Scripture and the nature of justification. Hot issues of that time. But the Apostles' Creed, what was, what was the point? What was the issue? Now, from the earliest records, it seems that the Apostles' Creed was used as a baptismal creed. Uh, now, some people don't like the idea of baptismal creeds, prerequisite catechismal instruction, because, you know, you don't see that in the book of Acts. You don't have the Apostle Paul planting churches by uh, giving them some kind of creed to learn first. He just started in the synagogue. But, of course, his first converts were all Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who had long familiarity with the Scriptures. They knew about creation and Adam and Moses and David. So Paul didn't need a baptismal creed to instruct them in the basics because they kind of came ready-built with some basics built in. But you run things forward 100 years, and now <laughs> it's, uh, the first generation dies out and people don't know. People or new converts are coming into the church not from the synagogue where you know the Scriptures. They're coming from the Roman world where all they know is the pagan, pagan legends and philosophies and myths and they're coming into the church. So it's a little different. And so, okay, let's have a creed. It thinks to help what the world was like in the time uh, before, this would, before this new Christian came into the church. What was this new Christian's life like? In the Roman world, there were lots of gods. Every nation had its own god. Uh, the, each king on, in his little kingdom was thought to be somehow the, a son of God because he's the king. Uh, the Roman emperor himself was a god of some kind. Uh, and when the empire added kingdoms, they just added the gods of all the nations. And so you get this pantheon of lots and lots of gods. Everybody, every kingdom, uh, every tribe had its god. And then every city had a god. And then maybe there was a, a god associated with that forest or with the river over here. And when the, when the fish died, you prayed to the god of the river. And then every household had a god of hearth and food and fever. So if your kid got sick, you didn't pray to the national god, you prayed to the household god. Because you wanted your things in the household needed to be taken care of that way. So that's the background of why you need an, a, a creed. These Christians now, I come into the church and they're telling me, wait, wait, that's not how it works at all. You don't have all these gods. In the creed you're taught, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So the God who made everything everywhere is the God we worship and pray to. Okay, 
And then the next thing you say in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I'm not going to go into the conceived and born stuff. We just had Christmas. We had Advent. We had a couple of great sermons about the virgin birth. I'm not going to deal with that. I want to deal just with, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Because these are revolutionary ideas for our convert from the Roman world. This creed names a man, a man, a guy with a name who's the only son of God and who has ultimate authority. And these things are different. Now, there was something like this expected in the synagogue. They were expecting a man. They were expecting a Messiah to come. Their their belief was based on scriptures. They had promises and prophecies. But in the Roman world, (laughs) there wasn't any Bible out there. There, Nobody in the pagan world had anything like this. There weren't any scriptures that you could appeal to, any written authority that you could teach and argue from. So you come into the church. So how do we deal with these converts from the Roman world? They're simply ignorant about these things. And part of the answer was, let's give them a starter creed. So we're going to look at Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, because your salvation rests upon Jesus Christ, his humanity. Your salvation rests upon Jesus Christ, his divinity, and your salvation must respond to Jesus Christ, his authority. First, let's think about his humanity. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. This is a man's name, Jesus. It could be Fred or Roger. A man's name. It's just the Greek form of the word Joshua. And then Christ, Jesus Christ, which is not really a name. Christ is a title. Christ is the word for anointed. It's the Greek word anointed. The Hebrew word is Messiah. So it's Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. So it's a title. Jesus is an anointed one. But, you know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christ almost becomes part of the name. So when you talk about Jesus, you say Jesus Christ. You don't say Jesus of Nazareth. You say Jesus Christ. Kind of what, I wonder if it's a little bit the same way we would say Coach Osborne. It's almost part of his name. His title is part of his name. Well, Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus the Christ. On the day of Pentecost, I think this is the first time I could find it being used this way, Peter preached, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So it becomes a name. It's a title, but it's a name. We're talking about a guy. And this is very different from the Roman world. None of the religions had anything like this. No human, no just guy, was ever regarded as a personal manifestation of the Creator God. Really, a man a human, a guy named Jesus? I'm supposed to believe in the same breath that I confess God who created the heavens and the earth and in Jesus. This guy. Really? Yes, absolutely. Welcome to the Christian faith. When we look in Paul's sermon in Acts 13, he preaches Jesus, the man, as the proper and necessary object of faith. Paul gives a his sermon is a long one. We're not going to read, we didn't read the whole thing. Uh, but he preaches Jesus the man. 
He gives a quick summary of Israel's history leading up to David, the king, after God's heart. That's verse 22. And then verse 23, he says, of this man, David's offspring, his line, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. So there's a man at the end of the David's line, and there was this guy, and his name was Jesus, humanly descended from David. And all the prophecies of Scripture point to this man. So Paul preached to those who lived in Jerusalem, their rulers, because they did not recognize him. They didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And they carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. This guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. Your faith depends on your faith in this guy. This man, he lived and breathed and walked and talked and did all the same things you do. So to be a Christian, you must believe in God who made the heavens and the earth, and you must believe in a man, Jesus Christ. Your faith rests on Jesus' humanity. Of course, that's not all. It doesn't stop there, but it starts there. There was this guy. Your faith rests on Jesus' humanity. Second, his divinity. Jesus Christ, his only son, okay? Your faith rests on Jesus' divinity, and there's a, there's a claim to divinity in here. We go back to our pagan convert in the Roman world. It was not uncommon for the religious men and, and uh, philosophers to talk about people as the sons of God, okay? We're all kind of the sons of God in, in that way. You can find that general idea of a universal sense that mankind are sons of God. That's not too different. And you can find this idea especially in the idea of kingship. Every king on his throne was a son of God because God rules everything. And if we're going to have any rule in our land here, we've got to have a king. And he's kind of God's son, his representative. And so he's ruling. And so all the citizens need to salute when he says salute and pay your taxes when he says pay your taxes. That's how we have social order because we've got a son of God on the throne. That's not too crazy an idea. So the king, any king, every king, would be thought of as the son of God, especially the Roman emperor. He was the God. So that helps keep you paying your taxes and obeying the laws. And you even get something like that in Israel too. In 2 Samuel 7, um, God promised David that his line would ultimately bring a king whose kingdom would never, ever end. Now he's clearly talking about the ultimate Messiah. But in the next breath, when God makes that promise, he says... I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. So this sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Okay, now wait a minute. I thought we were talking about Jesus here. No, we're talking about the line of kings of David. And they're all sons of God in that kind of sense. We have the view of the individual kings in David's line, each of, each of whom can be called the son of God, son of David. But some of them were sinful and disobedient. So a king could be thought of God's son in that sense. But the creed goes beyond that. He says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son. And it puts the word only in there, which blows everything up. Not Jesus Christ, yet another son. Not Jesus Christ, yet another king somewhere. This claim is that Jesus Christ is God's only son. 
Now, them's fighting words. You may think of a king as a son of God in one sense, but here's the truth. Jesus Christ is the only son of God in the final sense. Don't leave that out of your calculations. In Acts 13, Paul explains that the unique sonship of God was shown to the world on the day of Christ's resurrection. He quotes Psalm 2, Psalm of David. The first sense about David's kingship was a coronation day. Psalm 2 is kind of a coronation king. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Because this is David. This is David taking the throne of Israel, begotten of God, enthroned on Zion, victorious over the nations. Well, at least it starts there. But if these words mean anything, it goes farther than David. David never went that far in his kingship. I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. No king in Jerusalem ever did that. So Paul says, verse 33, verse 32, 33, we bring to you the good news. Here's what happened. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. The resurrection of Jesus is the begetting of the only son. at least in that sense. And as for the fact that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, I will give you the sure holy blessings of David. Okay, in all of history, there has been one and only one man who was dead and buried and then raised bodily from the grave. And in that body, walked around and talked to people. And in that body, ate. And in that body, finally ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. One and only. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. So why believe in Jesus? Why be a Christian? Why be baptized and come into the church? Why is that better than anything else? Listen, if God's going to be known, he has to make himself known. Nobody is smart enough to sit down and think up ideas about what God must be like and get it. And the man who does, the man who sets out to tell the world, hey, I've sat down, I've figured it out, I know the truth about God, I know about the truth about the universe and everything, you don't have to trust him any more than you'd trust me or the six other guys who sit down and think about things. because they all come up with different ideas about what God must be like. You can't figure out what God must be like on your own. If God's going to be known, he has to make himself known. And this is what the Bible says. No one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. Jesus is the only Son of God. Only God can make God known. Jesus was the only man who ever dared to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. <laughs> oh, 
come on. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Here. Your faith rests on Jesus' divinity. And his, he's the only one who can show you what, the, what God is really like. When you see Jesus, you see who God is. So we confess Jesus' humanity. We confess his divinity. And because he is man and God, he has authority. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I'm coming into the church. I'm part of this group. And we confess Jesus is Lord. He is our Lord. The word Lord is used in servant-master relationships. Sometimes very literally, sometimes more figuratively. You can call someone Lord if you're just acknowledging that person has some authority in the current circumstances. It can uh, almost sound something like uh, Sir, if you're addressing somebody politely with formality. Abram uh, negotiated with Ephron the Hittite. He wanted to buy a burial site for Sarah. And Ephron the Hittite talks to Abraham and he says, My Lord, Listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels. What's that between you and me? Okay, we're negotiating a price here. And he calls him my Lord, just because this is a, a formal, polite situation. Ruth, on the threshing floor of Boaz, appeals to Boaz as her Lord. David, running from Saul. Saul comes out and chases David, finds him in the wilderness, and David asks Saul, my Lord, why do you pursue your servant? Okay, so you can use my Lord that way. So at the root, there's this kind of servant-master relationship. You, Lord, you have the ability to make things happen. You have the standing to determine an outcome here. And this is why Israel, God's servant nation, consistently calls God the Lord. He is the one who speaks. He is the one whom we obey. Now, in the Roman Empire, here comes our guy into the church. He doesn't know any of this. One of the most prominent confessions in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Okay, he's the emperor. He tells, he's, he says what is. At Caesar's word, armies march and laws are enforced and criminals are executed. Maybe they're pardoned. Caesar has that authority. So our newcomer, Maybe, if he, maybe he's a servant. Maybe he's used to calling his master Lord. He would certainly call the magistrate Lord if he were called into court. But now the Christian is taught to confess Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a new guy in charge. And when you confess our Lord, this, this confession has two sharp edges. One is, I'm in a different kind of religion here. In the old religions, you could ask the gods for help and you tried to keep them happy. But there was not a lot of sense of, here are the commands that you must obey. Here are the things you've got to do. The God really didn't care what I was up to that much as long as I honored him appropriately and made a sacrifice once in a while. You didn't have this moral obligation to obey his commands. But when I confess Jesus Christ is our Lord, I'm committing myself with the rest of the church. To, I'm joining with the company of God's servants in obedience to one master. That master is going to judge me for my service. On the day of judgment, 
some will hear his terrible words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord. So that's one thing. You're committing to his authority. And on the other side, no man can serve two masters. You can only have one Lord, ultimately. I can call the magistrate Lord out of respect. I may even call Caesar Lord. I can call my, the master of our household Lord if I'm, a, if I'm a servant slave. But there may be times when the Lord Jesus says one thing and the Lord Caesar says a different thing. And I need to be very clear about which is going to receive my first duty. Who is Lord? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. His humanity, His divinity, His authority. His authority. Paul's sermon concludes in Acts 13 with the same kind of idea. You need to be clear and you need to decide because this decision has eternal consequences. Beware, therefore, lest what's said about the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. There's a warning. You have, to, you have to see him as Lord and respond to his authority. In another place, Paul writes to the church, there's no God but one, for although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.